It's good to come together and sing things like uh, He Reigns and Great is His Faithfulness. That's important. A um, couple things, an announcement I forgot. The bulletin says there is stories tonight for youth, and that is not true. Uh, they are not meeting tonight. And Peter tells me that we are short of a quorum, which means two things. We can't have a meeting, and I have 10 more minutes to preach. That's what it means. So I'm really happy about that. Um, the title of the sermon today is Wrestling with Ezra, and I'm just going to be honest. I, I hope you guys are ready. We're going we're gonna to work through a text today. I've been wrestling with Ezra for a few weeks now, and uh, it's, it's very fitting through this season of Lent and this journey of exile that we're talking about, uh, and, and we've got all this going on in the world, this shaking of everything that's normal. It's, it's, it's interesting that we would come to this text, um, and I'm... I, I hope, how many of you are ready for a challenge? Raise your hand. Don't touch anybody when you do, but how many of you are ready for a challenge, okay? Because I'm going to walk through this text and try, I'm going to spend a lot of time kind of teaching you the text, which uh, teaching is something we do more of in Sunday school. I think there's always some teaching in a sermon, but what I try to do in the sermon is help you encounter God. We're going to spend a lot of time teaching the text, and at the end I'm going to say, now, from what we've seen about God, these are some application things. But anyway, we're, we're working through Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm, I'm learning a lot. My whole view of these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is coming up the next couple of weeks, um, is shifting. And I kind of wish we could go back a few weeks uh, and start over. Uh, but before we dig in today, and as a way of giving you the big picture, I want to spend about three minutes really letting you understand the flow of Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, if you go to a Jewish Bible, it's only one book. It's not two books. Ezra and Nehemiah are one story uh, about the return, three-wave return of the Jews from exile. And to grasp the heart of the message today, you've got to locate it with where it fits in that big Ezra slash Nehemiah book. It's, it tells the story of three characters, Zerubbabel, who we talked about last week, uh, Ezra, and who we'll talk about this week, and Nehemiah, who will be the next couple weeks. And last week we looked at chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra as Zerubbabel took leadership to help the people rebuild the temple. That's what they did last week. Remember that we went through this process and we kind of skimmed over chapters 1 to 6. It was a struggle. Other people wanted to help build the temple. Zerubbabel said, no way, you guys cannot help. And that turned, made it turn into a difficult project, but they finished it. Remember, they finished building the temple it wasn't quite as, quite as grand and glorious, and we talked about that last week, how we don't, didn't see the Spirit of God descend and His presence in this temple the way we had in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, but they finished it. Now this week, in chapters 7 to 10 of Ezra, we're going to bump forward about 50, 60 years to a second wave of return from Babylon, and, and Ezra is there, and what he's doing is trying to rebuild the Torah community. He's focused on the law. And we're going to spend all our time in, in just a minute on, on what Ezra's doing. He wanted to reaffirm the law of Moses to the community during this post-exilic time. And then over the next couple of weeks, Jake will look at the final phase of the return from exile as Nehemiah leads the people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Right? Remember Nehemiah? He's the guy who rebuilt the walls. And, and the, this, this whole chunk of Scripture, Ezra and Nehemiah, is the story of three different groups coming back from Babylon. And you've got to realize that what it really does is it mirrors, you'll see this in the text today, it mirrors people leaving Egypt and coming to the promised land. Because what Ezra and Nehemiah talks about is how do we rebuild our Jewish identity 
For 70 years we've been in exile. How do we learn as a community to be Jews again? And, and in the original, leaving Egypt, they, the tabernacle's built, right? They, they, get, they receive the law, and eventually, after year, they get and they build Jerusalem, which is the holy city. And in this, we see the same thing, the temple being built, the return to the law, the rebuilding of the city. But one of the interesting things I think that I'm seeing is in this second wave of return, it's still a failure as far as what God's intentions are for his people. You know, and that's, it's a different take. If you read, maybe you don't, but I read church leadership books, and a lot of them are about Nehemiah and how he came back and drawing principles from Nehemiah's life, and that's how we lead. And, and there are a lot of good things in Nehemiah's life. But if you really look at Ezra and Nehemiah together, at the end of it, the Jews are home, they have a temple, they've got the law again, but they're still the same people as they were before. So, Let's start today in this middle section of Ezra and Nehemiah, looking at Ezra, the law, and the community. Ezra's happen, his return happens about 50 years after the temple's built. There's a king back in, in Persia, Babylon area, Artaxerxes, and he sends him back to Jerusalem to make sure the Jewish law was being taught and followed. Now, this is a pretty typical practice of the Persians. They liked to let the people that they ruled over maintain their religious identity. They felt it was good to keep the peace, to let the people have their own religion. But the story's a little complicated. We're going to read chapter 7 of Ezra, verses 1 to 27. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit of genealogy there. At the beginning it says, After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, and now it's going to go through his genealogy, tracing him all the way back at the end of verse 5 to Aaron, the chief priest. I'm not going to read all those names. There is fascinating things in there, but we just don't have time today. Another time. Verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king, Artaxerxes, granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, the temple servant, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. That's important. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes has given Ezra the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you may go. You're sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you're to take with you the silver and gold the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. 
With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of the trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of God of heaven, may ask you. That's a blank check. Up to 100 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra... In accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whatever, whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisor and his advisors and all the earth and all the king's powerful officials because the hand of the lord my god was on me i took courage and gathered leading men from israel to go up with me now he's leading the people you got to get this on on a new exodus and and one of the things that the text makes really clear in, and i'm not going to go into a lot of details i'll give you a few but it's presenting him as the new moses ezra is a new moses He's leading the people, and they're going from exile, from slavery, from a difficult time, and they're heading to the promised land. Remember we saw last week that as the first group went from Babylon, they received gold and silver just like they had done when they left Egypt, that they plundered the people. And there's other hints there. It says in chapter 7, verse 6, he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. On verse 9, it says he began his journey on the first day of the first month. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, at the beginning of the Passover, the night they left, God says to the people, this will be the first month of your new year. He chose to leave on the day of the month of the year that the same, that the, the people left Egypt on. He left on that same day. And, and if you read on into 18, he, he stops at the beginning of the journey. It's so funny. He gathers all the people and they get ready to go. And then he stops and he's wait, where are the Levites? We need the Levites, all the priests. And he calls them all up and he gives them all the articles that will be used in the temple. Now you remember when Moses is leading the people through the desert, the Levites would carry all the things of the tabernacle, right? It's, it's mirroring that very story. In the end of chapter 8, which we didn't read, verse 31, it says, The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. There's these, these stories of deliverance, they feel like, all through, the, all, all through their journey, which mirror what happened in the time of the Exodus. When they get there, eight, chapter 8, verse 32, it says, They rest for three days. If you remember the story of Joshua, when he led the people across the Jordan River, when they got there, 
Before they started entering and taking the land, they rested for three days. What the writer is doing here is saying Ezra is a new Moses. And, and the reason he's going is an attempt to return to the law. He has been, he's been trained, he knows the law of God, and he's coming back to Jerusalem to try to return the people. It's, it's been initiated by the Persian king. See, he, he was a guy that said, I don't really want to offend any gods. So I'm going to let the people I rule, I'm going to let them worship their God, because if, I, if one of them is right, if one of them has a God and I offend him, then it's going to be trouble for my nation. So he says in chapter 7, you're sent to go back to inquire about the law of God. And at the end of that letter, he says, you're supposed to teach the people that know it, that don't know it, and the people that do know it, you're supposed to set up magistrates and officials to make sure that the law of God is followed. Once again, this is restoring the Jewish identity. Who are we as Jews? We came back in that first run with Zerubbabel last week. We built the temple. Now we're having the law. We're restoring the law. And eventually with Nehemiah, we're going to have our holy city again, right? It's, it's this restoration of identity. It's redefining and establishing what it meant to be a Jew. Now, the issue in Ezra comes, and this is what's challenging. It's in chapter 9 and chapter 10. It's in a, what I would call an uncomfortable course of action. It's uncomfortable because when we read it, we get a little squeamish. Uh, let's look at chapters. I'm going to kind of walk you through chapter 9. And part of chapter 10. Look at chapter 9, 1 to 3. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, think about that. This whole book is about reestablishing the Jewish identity. We need a temple. We need a law. We need a holy city. And when Ezra gets there, they say they've, they've not kept themselves separate. They've mingled the holy race. There's a problem, right? Their identity is being compromised. And Ezra prays in, in verses 4 to 15. Just listen. Uh, or 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled my hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. And I prayed, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. 
Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the king of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your service to the prophets when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance." We'll stop right there. What, what happens is, is they realize that there's been all this intermarrying that's happened since the exiles have come back. And part of it is that some Jews had stayed behind the whole time in the area of Jerusalem. They weren't exiled. Remember when we talked about the people that were exiled a couple weeks ago, that some of the poorest ones stayed behind and, and kept the vineyards going and things like that. And those people had intermarried with the other nations. And then when the exiles came back in the first, some of those people had intermarried with the other nations. And so in verse 10, or in chapter 10, the mourning and repentance of Ezra flows out to the people. Look at 10 verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. And then there was a suggestion in verse 2 from a guy named Shechaniah. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiliel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. Now, this is where it gets awkward. This is where it it offends our modern sensibilities because what actually happens, and it kind of happens, it's unique. You'll have to read, you can read more of it, but we're kind of tight on time, so I'm not going to read it all. They gather, and Ezra's talking to the people, and they make a covenant, and they say, we need to send all these wives and children away if we're going to be faithful Jews. And what the people actually say is, we hear you, but it's raining, and this is complicated, so why don't you let us all go back to our towns, and then we can deal with it over a period of time. And that's what happens in the rest of chapter 10. And then they do go back to their town, and it it lists those that were guilty of intermarriage. And some of them, at the beginning, it says they send their wives and children away, and a bunch of them, it doesn't say that. So we're not really sure. It's kind of an awkward ending to the whole story. But I call this is an un- uncomfortable course of action because it would have been a horrific experience. Let's just be honest with the text for the wives and children, right? They would have been completely vulnerable because their economic support had been cut off. Their familial relationships had been cut off. And, and I'm sensitive to the fact that sometimes obedience to God leads us into difficult situations. But the more I study and think about this, and and this is where you're going to have to go with me, and you know what, guess what? You don't have to agree with me. That's the beauty of interpreting the Bible. But but I I have a different take on these passages that might might help you. In, In 2 Timothy 2, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 
I want us to really do diligence with the scripture and see what it's saying. But I want you to, I want you to, I'm going to take you down a pathway and you tell me what you think when it's over, but nicely, right? It's good that I'm preaching when there's like half the church here and you're not going through. You're not, you can't, you don't even have a quorum to fire me today. So that's good. Um, the first thing I want to look at is the vision of the prophets. There were two prophets that were prophesying at this very time. Zechariah, who we saw in Advent, and Malachi. They were speaking the word of God to the exiles who had returned. And Zechariah, I'm just going to put up a few um, passages from Zechariah of the things he was saying. And I want you to hear them in light of two things that have happened. Remember back in Ezra 4, when the other people said, we worship the same God, we want to help you build the temple. And then Zerubbabel says, no way, you have nothing to do with us. And right now, in, in the, these wives of other nations, I want you to, and the sending of them away, I want you to hear the prophet's words in light of those two events. The first is Zechariah chapter 2, 10 to 13. Should be up there. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord all mankind because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The prophet is saying at this very time, many nations will come and be a part of you. That's what God's vision is. Zechariah 6.15 Those who are far away will come and help you build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Many nations will come and help build the temple of the Lord. Again, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20 to 23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once and entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. There's this prophet saying, non-Jews are going to come and seek me. And then the other prophet was Malachi, and I want you to hear his words. You're familiar with this passage, Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your, spe- in your spirit and do not break faith. Now, add to that the teaching in the New Testament that says if, if a believer has an unbelieving spouse, you shouldn't send them away, right? You should trust that God can work in that situation. So here's the question that I'm confronted with as I read what the prophets are saying to the people and I read Ezra and Nehemiah, what the people are actually doing. Did Zerubbabel do the right thing when he refused to have people help him build the temple? And did Ezra do the right thing when when he and the people decided to send these women away? I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) And you say to me, but Jeff, well, what about the teaching of the law? The law said, now Jeff, come back. You got to, got to, and I agree. I'm glad you said that because we know the Old Testament was really clear about not intermarrying. Remember, we've all heard that. The Jews should not intermarry. And, And let's look at those passages. Exodus 34, 15 and 16. 
Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. There's a danger in intermarriage, it's saying, because they will get you to worship other gods. Very clear. Again, in Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, don't intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will run against you and quickly destroy you. Now, the law is really clear, isn't it? Don't intermarry because they're going to lead you down a path of worship. So, yes, Ezra did the right thing. Did he? I, that's the question. Because when you look at what Ezra says in chapter 9, verse 1 of our text, After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Now, he doesn't say, now maybe I'm reading too much into it, but he doesn't say they've not kept themselves separate from the, the people and their detestable practices, but from the people with their detestable practices. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, They've taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. Now, the idea there is not that these people are necessarily... He never says these people are worshiping the gods of the pagan nations. Maybe they were. We don't know that. But what Ezra's doing is... What they're saying is they're not Jews. They're not Jews. And I'm curious here if, yeah, you guys are all getting ready to fire me. I can see it in your eyes. But I'm thinking here, what, what's, what's become more important now is establishing our Jewish identity as a race than being the people of God. Because the prophets are saying, these people, these people, they'll come, they'll be a part of me. And we see Zerubbabel and Ezra sending those people away. Shekinah has the idea, you know, where, where did God say send them away? He didn't. We never see the prophet saying you should do that. We see the people coming up with that idea. And when you look at the actions of those returning from back in chapter 4 when they wouldn't let them build the temple, I won't show that text read. And we see what happens in chapter 10, 10 where they're sending the women away. Now, what, what are you saying, Jeff? Here it is in a nutshell. Here's what I'm saying. The Jews are returning home because of God's promise. He has led them home. They're seeking to reestablish what it means to be the Jewish people, their identity. And the prophets are saying God's vision for his people is that they will be a doorway where the other nations come to know him. And the people and their leaders are focused on maintaining their ethnic purity. Driving out those who are not Jews. And the reality is, you know what? Right or wrong, whether what Zerubbabel did and Ezra did was right or wrong, it didn't work. Because you even see in Nehemiah, by the end of Nehemiah, after they're all established and they've got the temple and they've got the law and they've got the city again, the people are still worshiping other gods. They're still intermarrying. They're still off base. They've missed the point. So that that leads me to this question about Ezra and Nehemiah. And that is, is this story descriptive? Or prescriptive. And remember Samson? How many of you went home after Samson and killed a thousand Philistines as a sermon application? How many of you went home and tied the tails of foxes together and set them on fire? Right? You've got to realize that sometimes the Bible is not telling you what to do. It's telling you what people did. 
And I think a lot of Ezra and Nehemiah, because one of the problems I have is why, if God does hate divorce, if God doesn't want families to break up, why does he break up families? And what, what, if, what if that necessarily wasn't what God wanted? It doesn't say that it was. What, what if this is a, a descriptive story of what happened instead of a, a prescriptive story? You know, Abraham told lies about his wife Sarah twice. He said, she's my sister because she was so beautiful. He didn't want the kings to kill him to marry her. But nobody thinks that's all right for us to do. That's a descriptive story, not a prescriptive story. Maybe they were doing what they thought was best and trying to keep the law, but actually not moving toward what God had envisioned for them. And and that's the question. And I'm going to leave you with that. You can see this is more, I feel like it's more like a theology class, a Bible class, because we're wrestling with that. But, but the question <laughs> that we need to come to is what might this be saying to us today? Because I need to be quiet. I'm almost, I'm into our congregational meeting time now, just so you know. But I'll, I'll have us done in a minute. The challenge is taking these ideas and applying them to where we are today. How does it look to follow? Remember that passage. It said that, that we're to do our, our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So how are we going to do that? First, we need to read the whole of Scripture. We need to read the whole of Scripture. Now, I, I hesitate on this because I always want you to think you can read and understand the Bible. You can. But it's not like the daily bread where you just pull a verse out. The Bible is something you live in a relationship with. You've heard that joke about the guy who decided he was going to get direction from God by pointing to a verse in the Bible, and he flipped open, and he pointed to Matthew 27, 5, and it says Judas went away and hanged himself. And then he said, well, that can't be it. So he flipped to another one, and it was Luke 10, 37, and it said Jesus told him, go thou and do likewise. And he thought, oh, that's kind of scary. So he flipped again, and it was John 13, 27, and he said, what you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> right? The Bible isn't like that where you can just pull a verse. It's understandable, but it's something that you need to read the whole of Scripture. You need to see it in light of everything. Right? You need to, read, you need to get what's going on. Verses very easily get taken out of context. How many of you have ever been taken out of context in something you said? Right? I think sometimes God's like, I didn't say that. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and, succeed, and help you succeed, give you a hope and a future. Do you realize that was written to people in exile who for 70 years would sit in exile? Right? What God's saying is not everything's always going to be great for you, but that's the way we interpret that a lot of times. He's saying, I'll take care of you. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah, you know, I can't be an NBA player through Christ who gives me strength. It's not going to happen. But we, we take that verse and we think, I can do all things. Well, the reality is in the context, Paul's saying if I have or I don't have, I'm content. If, if, if I'm mistreated or if I'm loved, I'm happy. I can handle that. I've, I've learned to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens. He says I can endure any kind of situation because Christ is strengthening me. And my, my pet peeve is where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I love you guys. I really do. But when, when you use this as an assurance that God is with you, if, if there's only one of you there, is God not there? He's there, right? He's there all the time. He's, he, he, you can't get away from God. And I, I know it's, it's good intentions. Well, two or three are gathered. If you read the context, it's in the context of church discipline. 
If you're going to hold somebody to account, you need a few people going because two or three of you will be way more balanced than one or two. God can go with you then. But we use it just as God's presence. See, we misinterpret Scripture, and I'm saying we need to read the whole of Scripture. And We'll skip 2 Peter 3 to read. I'm skipping all these verses because I'm running late. Sorry. But the temptation is to see the Bible as a book that we master like your driver's license book. Right? You're taking your driver's license test. You're going to read this book. You're going to get all the facts down. The Bible is, is something you live in relationship with. It's not that, that it's... If you see it as a driver's license manual, no wonder you're intimidated. You feel like you've got to figure it all out. The Bible is something we... It's a living text that we live in relationship with over the whole of our life, and we learn. Like, how many of you knew your spouse on day one of marriage? You didn't know them. You didn't know everything about them. But over the period of your marriage, you learn about them. You live in relationship. You, and, and that's the way we live in relationship with the text. We need time. I'm not sure I know any more than I did. Yeah, okay, Tim. <laughs> I think Carrie says he knows a little bit more. How about this? Do you know that you don't know as much as you thought you did? Yes, okay, there we go. <laughs> right? And that sometimes the Bible, as we live in a relationship with it, we come to this place we're like, I don't get this. And that's part of the process. It's okay. But we need to read the whole Bible. And one of the things we see when we read the whole Bible is this, that we see God's heart for the whole world. You know, we read from Zechariah that, that many nations will be joined with the Lord on that day and will become his people. In the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this means the whole world. This, there's... This is revolutionary. Do you get this? This is a revolutionary truth. This means God loves your enemy. This this means God loves the person who hurts you. He does. He loves them. It's one of the most radical shifts if you can actually begin to see God's heart for the whole world. Because these people that are coming against you, these people that are making your life difficult, God loves them. When we start talking about those people and them, we've lost that, right? I see, I see countries polarizing against other people, and, and, and we, we demonize the other, and they're the bad guy. And as Christians, we've got to see God's heart for the whole world. We met a Muslim guy in, in Jordan, and he, like he, just, he, he felt, he was happy to know we were Canadians because he thought, I won't go into the detail, but in a nutshell, he thought Americans don't like Arabs. And he was a lovely guy, right? God loves that guy. And how sad that, that we posture ourselves in ways that, that polarize that. If God loves the whole world, God loves the whole world. It's a little idea like a time bomb that'll blow your life apart if you sit with it. What if every person you saw in the rest of your life, the first thought that popped into your head when you saw them was, God deeply loves that person. How would that shape your interactions? It'll blow your world apart. Because you can't have enemies anymore, if that's the case. And here's the last thing, and I'll shut up, because the meeting's almost over. The last message from here is that external control doesn't bring inward change. Zerubbabel sets up the temple, and 50 years later, there's still problems. Ezra refocuses the people on the law. 15 years later, there's still problems. 
See, the problem with defining the Jewish identity from outward rituals and laws is that you cannot force change in people. I said that to someone this week. They were talking about the problem with, with this spread of disease and everything and, and how you can't, you can't make adults change. And I said, welcome to church. <laughs> you can't make people change by external control. You can't make people change by guilt and shame. Colossians 2, 22 and 23. These rules which have to do with things that are destined to perish and with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, what's happening here as they're trying to redefine Jewish identity, they're being forced to realize that the solution is not being a good Jew. The solution is the love and grace and forgiveness of God. This whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah points forward to say, there's got to be somebody that will come and make a way for us to actually be different. We've, we've come back to the land. We've got the temple. We've got the law. Look, we've got the wall around Jerusalem. And we're still the same people. Who's going to fix us? That's the story of the Old Testament. And Jesus shows up in the New Testament and says, I'll do it. But I'll do it in a way you don't imagine. I'll love people that you hate. And I'll serve them. And, and when they try to kill me, I'll let them and I'll forgive them as I die. Because God's heart is for the whole world. See, that's why this Lent process is great. That's why texts like these that we don't understand are great because they force us to say, I don't get it, but I need to, to surrender. I need to surrender to God who does. I need to let his love and forgiveness wash over me so that I can let it wash over other people, so that I can see God's heart for the whole world, so I can be changed from the inside, not because I do the right things, but because I've actually experienced the love and grace of God and can love other people the way I've been loved. Let's pray. God, we need your leadership and transformation. We need so much more than we have. I'm thankful for people that come out this morning uh, in spite of a pandemic. Thankful for people that see importance in coming to worship you. And it is important that we come here. But it's not just coming here that changes us. It's not the ritual. It's not the, the repetition. It's not the keeping of the law. It's not knowing the right information that changes us. It's, it's receiving the love and grace that you have for us and the whole world. And I ask that you would, as we wrestle with what Ezra and Nehemiah, if it even matters what they did or didn't do, help us to be drawn to the fact that in, in the heartbeat of this story is a God who wants all nations to come to know him. It's a God who wants to change people so that they live in ways that are healthy and productive and not given to idolatry and destruction. That's, that's the God you are. So help us to, to surrender and follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.